I'm writing this under appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug, which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think for my slavery to morphine that I am weakling or degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, but never fully realize why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize. Whilst we of her crew were treated with all fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners, so liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself to drift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess, vaguely by the sun and stars, that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some uninhabitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair my solitude upon hearing vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know. My slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I was awakened, it was to discover myself, half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations, as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. But one might well imagine that my first sensation would be a wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation. Of scenery I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish, and of other less describable things, which I saw protruded from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight, save a vast reach of black slime, yet the very completeness of the stillness and homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under the unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me, I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might, nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling. Purposes in a short time that night, I slept but little. The next day, I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning, I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight and evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily east-westward, guided by a far hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day was still traveled toward the hummock. Though the object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it, by the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance. Intervening valley, setting it out sharp from leaf, the general surface. Too wary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, 
but ere the warning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, now I felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side in an immeasurable pit of or canyon, whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to loom. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through the terror ran reminiscent of paradise lost, and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easily footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual, urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze. I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler, gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once, my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with a sensation I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss, had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith, whose massive bulk known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions and almost slapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphs unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fish, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things, which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I'd observed on an ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carvings, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water, on account of their enormous size, were an array of boss relief, whose subject could have excited the envy of a door. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage to some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. With their faces and forms, I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a poe or a buller, there was damnably human in the general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other featureless, pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, there seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fish or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished, eras before the ancestors of the pit-downer Neanderthal man was born. 
awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most staring anthropologist. I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then suddenly I saw it, only a slight churning to, its, to mark its rise to the surface. The thing slid into view above the dark waters, vast, polyphemous, and loathsome, and darted with a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith. At Denver, there was an influx of passengers into the coaches on the eastbound B&M Express. In one coach, there sat a very pretty young woman dressed in elegant taste and surrounded by all the luxurious comforts of an experienced traveler. Among the newcomers were two young men, one of handsome presence with a bold, frank countenance and manner, the other a ruffled, glum-faced person, heavily built and roughly dressed. The two were handcuffed together. As they passed down the aisle of the coach, the only vacant seat offered was a reversed one facing the attractive young woman. Here the linked couple seated themselves. The young woman's glance fell upon them with a distant, swift disinterest. Then with a lovely smile brightening her countenance and a tender pink tinging her round cheeks, she held out a little grey gloved hand. When she spoke, her voice, full, sweet, and deliberate, proclaimed that its owner was accustomed to speaking and being heard. Well, Mr. Easton, if you will make me speak first, I suppose I must. Don't you ever recognize old friends when you meet them in the West? The younger man roused himself sharply at the sound of her voice, seemed to struggle with a slight embarrassment, which he threw off instantly, then clasped her fingers with his left hand. It's Miss Fairchild, he said with a smile. I'll ask you to excuse the other hand, it's otherwise engaged just at the present. He slightly raised his right hand, bound at the wrist by the shining bracelet, to the left one of his companion. The glad look in the girl's eyes slowly changed to a bewildered horror. The glow faded from her cheeks, her lips parted in a vague, relaxing distress. Easton, with a little laugh as if amused, was about to speak again when the other forestalled him. The glum-faced man had been watching the girl's countenance with veiled glances from his keen, shrewd eyes. You'll excuse me for speaking, miss, but I see you're acquainted with the marshal here. If you'll ask him to speak a word for me, when we get to the pen, he'll do it, and it'll make things easier for me there. He's taking me to Leavenworth Prison. Seven years for counterfeiting. Oh, said the girl with a deep breath and returning color. So that is what you're doing out here. A marshal. My dear Miss Fairchild, said Easton calmly. I had to do something. Money has a way of taking wings unto itself. And you know it takes money to keep step with a crowd in Washington. I saw this opening in the West, and well, a marshalship isn't quite as high a position as that of an ambassador, but... The ambassador, said the girl warmly, doesn't call anymore. He needn't ever have done so. You ought to know that. And so now you're one of those dashing western heroes, and you ride and shoot and go into all kinds of danger. That's different from the Washington life. You've been missed from the old crowd. The girl's eyes, fascinated, went back and forth, widening a little to rest upon the glittering handcuffs. Don't you worry about them, miss, said the other man. All marshals handcuff themselves to their prisoners to keep them from getting away. Mr. Easton knows his business. Will we see you again in Washington, asked the girl. Not soon, I think, said Easton. My butterfly days are over, I fear. I love the West, said the girl irreverently. Her eyes were shining softly. She looked away out the car window, and she began to speak truly and simply without the gloss of style and manner. Mama and I spent the summer in Denver. She went home a week ago because father was slightly ill. I could live and be happy in the West. I think the air here agrees with me. Money isn't everything, but people always misunderstand these things and remain stupid. Say, Mr. Marshall, growled the glum-faced man. This isn't quite fair. 
I'm needing a drink and haven't had a smoke all day. Haven't you talked?